Isaiah 27, remember we said, brings us to the end of kind of a few chapters that often are referred to as a mini-apocalypse in the book of Isaiah because a lot of what we have been seeing here, we've noticed this very repetitious phrase the Holy Spirit keeps bringing through the prophet, in that day, in that day. And often when we see that phrase, in that day, it's drawing to our attention that the lens is zooming out down through human history, beyond much of what's happening in the present day, and is oftentimes giving us information, insight regarding things that are going to happen in a future day, uh, the day of the Lord oftentimes as we refer to it as. And again, as we come to chapter 27 and finish this little section here, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 28 if the Lord permits this evening as well. But chapter 27, again, we see more of that repetition in that day, verse 1, again, chapter 2, in that day. And again, as we come to the chapter going through, we'll see that phrase continuing to recur. So chapter 27, verse 1, notice, tells us in that day, the Lord, it says, with his severe sword, great and strong will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, notice here when we see this term here, Leviathan, this is a title for this creature that first shows up to us in the book of Job, he's referenced once or twice in the Psalms as well, but predominantly we have Leviathan, this creature described in the book of Job initially and actually an entire chapter dedicated to the description of Leviathan in chapter 41 of Job. But notice Leviathan as seen here as well as described particularly in the book of Job is described as this powerful, fierce uh, dragon-like creature, often referred to as a serpent, that we see is committed, it seems, to chaos and to destruction. And when you read his description in the book of Job, he's this powerful dragon-like creature that causes chaos. He's fierce. He's destructive. He's unable to be tamed or to be controlled by humanity. What's interesting is as we get the full chapter description in Job 41 about Leviathan, there we also notice that there's an inference in the end of the chapter that there's something very unique about this creature, Leviathan, indicating perhaps that he represents something beyond just the physical serpent-like creature itself, as we might think of in regards to possibly what it could be describing. Job 41, verse 34, the end of the chapter says this about Leviathan. Let me read it to you. Job 41, 34 says, Leviathan, he is king over all the children of pride. Now, that's very interesting. Again, we can see him as a creature. Perhaps it was a legitimate creature, a dragon-like, serpent-like, fierce creature that did exist, but the Holy Spirit seems to give an indication that perhaps that Leviathan creature represented something beyond just a physical creature that was dragon-like and serpent-like and powerful, causing chaos and destruction. Perhaps that he is a inference there, the king over the children of pride. I believe it's an inference showing that the Leviathan creature was representative also of a spiritual creature who is also dragon-like, serpent-like, and that his primary intention is to cause chaos and destruction. The spiritual creature we know as Satan himself, who many times is described in that very similar language. It's interesting that Job 41.34 says of Leviathan that he's a king, which means he has rulership, He's a prince, he's someone who has a degree of rulership, and he's the prince or the king over all the children, the offspring of pride. And what have we already seen thus far in Isaiah 14, we also referenced Ezekiel chapter 28, that the fall of Satan himself was a fall that was directly connected to what? The pride in the heart of Satan as this ruling angelic being. And how interesting is it that he himself, in many ways, is certainly the king and the ruler 
over all of the offspring who have pride at the root of their heart. This is what the devil is trying to manipulate. He himself is full of pride. His fall was connected to pride. He's the ruler over all of the proud among humanity, and he is fierce and committed to chaos and destruction. And yet notice the Bible tells us here that in that day, and I believe this is a reference here, Leviathan, to Satan himself, as the prophet is speaking about Leviathan here, it says that in that day, Leviathan, Satan, this great strong creature is going to be dealt with with a severe blow by a great and a strong, notice verse 1, a great and severe and strong sword that's coming from the Lord. He says there in verse 1, in that day, this coming day, the Lord with his severe sword that's great and strong. What is the sword of the Lord representative of in the scripture? Well, Ephesians 6, Hebrews 4 tells us that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. When Jesus comes back in all of his power, Revelation 19, we see a great sword, not a literal sword, a spiritual sword, the word of the Lord coming forth. And with that spiritual sword, the word of the Lord, the authority and the power of the spoken word of the Lord, he basically slays and deals with all of his enemies and eradicates the Antichrist and all those who oppose him. And ultimately, it's with a word that Jesus can get rid of this serpent-like creature. It's interesting here that he says that the sword of the Lord is going to punish Leviathan, that fleeing serpent, that twisted serpent. Now, uh, this in many ways reminds me as well of Revelation chapter 12. If, if you want to turn there briefly, you're more than welcome to. If not, I just want to kind of acquaint you with perhaps what some of what's being described. Revelation chapter 12 describing Satan as a serpent, as a dragon, and the Lord bringing judgment upon him, tells us in Revelation 12, now a great sign appeared in heaven, verse 1, a woman clothed with the sun, moon uh, under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars, seeming to be describing again a, a, a picture here of Israel, the woman. And being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth, and another sign appeared, verse 3, in heaven, behold, a fiery, excuse me, a great fiery, notice the language, and red dragon, describing Satan, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And his tail, this dragon, drew a third of the stars. Stars often are used symbolically to refer to the angelic realm. We see that in Job and other places. He drew a third of the stars of heaven, the angels, one-third of the angelic realm, and he threw them to the earth, brought them down in his fall into a fallen condition. They became unclean or demonic spirits like himself. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. That should be capitalized because it's a reference to Messiah. So hopefully your translation gives proper nod to Christ there. It's a reference to the Christ child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that she should feed there for, uh, be there, feed there, excuse me, for 1,260 days, a time period of three and a half years. Notice verse seven, and war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. Notice these different descriptions of Satan. He's the accuser of our brethren. That's what he seeks to do, accuse continuously. Jesus is our advocate, our defense attorney. Satan is a prosecuting attorney. He's the accuser of the brethren, the one who's always making accusations and seeking to prosecute. And so when you see someone who has a very uh, big struggle with being someone who's critical and always heaping accusations, 
you know who's inspiring their mind and their mouth. It's the devil. Uh, so when someone is prone to always making accusations, constantly being critical, uh, that's certainly a very good, clear indication the accuser of the brethren's got a hold of their tongue, unfortunately. And they overcame, it says, him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell on the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down now to you. Notice, having great wrath, he's incensed because he knows he has a short time. So again, as the Lord executes this punishment upon Satan, these successive falls, he falls from his heavenly position of great authority and he becomes a fallen being. Then again, it seems he falls from his access to heaven. The Bible tells us that Satan still has access to heaven because, remember, he comes before God to talk to him to dialogue about Job. So at some point, he will again be punished. He'll lose that access to the heavenly realm. He'll be regulated to just access and chaos on the earth during the time of the tribulation. And then ultimately, at the end of that time period, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, remember, he, the Bible tells us that during the kingdom age, he's put into... The, the abyss, and he's there kept in prison. He falls once again, and then ultimately his final fall is when he's completely sentenced to the lake of fire. But again, the Bible describes here how by the word of the Lord, the sword of the Lord, this serpent, this chaotic being, the devil himself, this twisted serpent will ultimately be punished and dealt with, and God will slay that reptile that is in the sea. Now again, the sea, as we see many times, uh, no pun intended there, as we see the sea referenced in the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 13, Daniel's prophecy and other places, the sea many times is representative as well of the nations. So again, it could be that as he describes here in our verse, that he'll slay this reptile who's at work among the sea, that he's at work among the nations, causing deception, bringing chaos, but God will one day deal with him in great sternness and severity. Verse 2, and in that day, he then switches and says, sing to her, verse 2, a vineyard of red wine. Now remember Isaiah chapter 5 said that that vineyard was a reference, the vineyard of the Lord was a reference to Israel. So it seems God here is now speaking about his work among Israel, the nation, his vineyard, in that day. And the Lord says, I, the Lord, will keep it. That is, keep his vineyard, Israel. I will water it at every moment, even when the Antichrist fires his venomous wrath towards Israel, lest any hurt it. Notice, God is their protector. God is their defense to preserve them. I keep it, referring to the vineyard, Israel, day and night. Verse 4, fury is not in me. And the idea there is, prolonged anger, though Israel has failed, and they failed numerous times, God does not retain anger towards them. He's not upset with them. He says, fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? Imagine that. Here's someone trying to uh, put a defense up to keep God from working, and they put up, he says here, uh, what God looks at as a briar uh, and thorn wall as if somehow that's going to restrain God. <laughs> that's going to hold off God in battle when he comes in his vengeance and his power when Jesus returns as the conquering king and warrior. He says, they're going to put that up against me in battle. He says, I would go through them and burn them together or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. In other words, the Lord's saying the wiser thing to do would be to humble yourself and to just make peace with me. Don't resist me. Just make peace with me, the Lord would say. That is always the wisest way to respond to the Lord. Verse 6, he then says, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob, a term, again, referencing the nation of Israel, and Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the earth and the world with fruit. So notice, in the last days, that is the tribulation, the kingdom age, God will, the Bible says, uniquely bless Israel, not just as a nation, but even bless the land of Israel. 
as the Jewish people are in the land, that God will uniquely bless the land so that it blossoms and flourishes in an exponential way, in a way whereby it is so obvious that the blessing of the Lord is upon the land, causing it to flourish in a very unique way. He says that he will cause the nation to come back and the people will take root in Jacob and then Israel nationally will blossom and bud. And notice they will fill, he says, as exporters, they will fill the face of the world with their fruit. Now, already we began to see early signs of this happening in a partial sense initially, even now historically. Ever since the time that Israel became a nation once again, when they reestablished themselves as a nation in 1948 back in their homeland, what was when they arrived, swamps and wasteland, and the land was an absolute mess by their ingenuity and their efforts and God's blessing. Now that land is a fertile territory that is blossoming agriculturally. They are one of the, the high exporters of fruit to the whole world and produce, sending produce, this little tiny piece of land about the size, or some say smaller than the same geographic size of the state of New Jersey, that literally was just you know a matter of 75 years or so ago, nothing but swamps and overgrown wasteland, and they came back in, and with their intelligence and God's blessing, the land is budding and blossoming. And even if you look at it among the other areas around it in the, the Middle East, you see this very green, verdant area, and then everything else is brown. Because God's blessing that land, because God's fulfilling his word. And the Bible says that that will only happen to a greater de degree in the coming days ahead. And that day ahead, in the last days, God will just cause that to happen to an even greater degree. We're seeing it partially now, but he's referring to something that will happen even much more. Amos chapter 9 refers to, to such this way. God says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will, God says, I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord. Well, what a difference world affairs perhaps might be if people would just read the truth of God's word in regards to a lot of what is problematic regarding people's understanding of the Middle East, that God says, I have given them that land. Nobody's occupying any land. The land belongs to God. God says in the Bible, the world is mine. <laughs> every nation, every nationality, God owns the whole globe. God created everything. And if God's the owner and God's the landlord, he can give any territory, any piece of land to any people that he wants to. And God is very clear that he has given that land to the Jewish people, to Israel, on top of the fact that we see them historically having purchased the land on top of everything else. And God says, I will bring them back to their land, to the land I've given them, and I will bless them in the land. And I won't let them be uprooted because God wants them to be the tenant there. And again, he's very clear. We're fighting against something divine when we try and go in opposition to that. And of course, that's why we see, sadly, much of the chaos going on. And again, as I said before, much of the ignorance of people who don't understand reality, and it's not even rooted in a factual basis, and it causes much of the conflict that we see. Verse 7, he says, has he struck Israel, God says, as he struck those who struck him. In other words, has God dealt severely with Israel as he have dealt severely with some of their enemies and those who've opposed God? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? Again, God has always been merciful with his chosen people, Israel. Yes, God has disciplined them numerous times in history, but God has always been merciful with them because he has an ultimate plan and a purpose for their lives and for them as a people and a nation. In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it, he says, verse 8. He removes, God does it by his rough wind, 
in the day of the east wind. So it describes here sort of the Lord using a storm, a severe wind blowing through to bring discipline unto his people to, in a sense, allow them to suffer the consequences as Israel was at this time because of their rebellion against God. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob, the nation, will be covered. And by this, all the fruit of taking away his sin when he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. So he's describing here how Israel's own sinfulness in verses 8 and 9 and their rebellion, as often was in history, would be dealt with by God as many times God would, allowing them to experience the consequences of their rebellion, of their idolatry, by many times using a rod, a chastening instrument, and many times it was a foreign nation. And God would allow them to be subject here, perhaps as he's describing this rough, strong east wind, it could be a reference of, again, the Assyrians or the Babylonians coming across and how they would cause much problem. And that through that process, God often would deal with their sin to bring them unto repentance. We see it in the book of Judges. We see it historically with the nation. And here, verse 9 seems to be describing a picture of Israel in their suffering, coming to a place of repentance, their sin being addressed. He describes the fruit of taking away Israel's sin and how Israel was making their stones of their altars beaten into dust. The idea is they're, they're, they're tearing down their altars and they're doing what is necessary to repent. And God was severely working with them to bring them to repentance, as often sometimes God needs to be severe to bring a person to repentance, to bring a nation even to repentance. Verse 10, yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. And there the calf will feed and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its bowels are withered, notice the picture here is like a, a dying, shriveling, withering uh, plant or tree. They will be broken off. The woman will come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. Now, verses 10 and 11, a little bit peculiar, seem to be picturing how in that final day, as verses 10 and 11 describe, that the Lord will severely humble mankind. And though mankind has tried to build this and powerfully do that with their pride, that God will come in and powerfully dethrone the rulership of mankind and leave mankind and all of their efforts and all that they built in their resistance to God and their pride and their human ingenuity. He'll leave it just like a desolate wilderness and like a weakened tree that is shriveling up and withering away. The works of mankind will wither and fail like weak branches. They will be broken and all humanity has built will prove utterly worthless in the sight of the Lord, because it's something that was not built upon the Lord, but in rebellion to him. Verse 12, and it shall come to pass, notice here's our phrase again, in that day that the Lord will thresh and the channel of the river, that's the Euphrates, to the brook of Egypt down to the south, and you will be gathered, God says, one by one, that is individually, not even just in a collective effort, but one by one, you will be gathered, O you children of Israel. So again, he's describing how one by one, God by his spirit would be prompting the hearts of Jewish people from around the world to be returning back to their homeland, that something will stir in their hearts to make what often we call aliyah, to make pilgrimage, to want to go back to their homeland, even one by one, God by his plan and spirit will be gathering the people back. Again, Jesus talked about drawing them from the four corners of the earth, bringing them back to their land. So it shall be, verse 13, in that day, the great trumpet will be blown, and trumpets are often used to awaken, to signal to do things, to give direction for movements to be made. And he describes here a great trumpet to be blown. And they, that's Israel, the Jewish people, will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. Again, different locations. They've been scattered among the world. 
and they who are the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. So it describes here in that latter day, this great gathering of Israel coming back to their homeland, to the Jewish people coming back to their homeland, and they will be drawn, he says, from all over the earth. And in the kingdom age, Jesus will be there reigning and ruling among them, as is described in verse 13. He says, all the outcasts and all who are in other places will come back. And verse 13, the end of it, they shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. And Jesus will be there reigning when he does return in Jerusalem and for that kingdom age, not only will the Jews be there worshiping Jesus, acknowledging him as Messiah, but people from all nations will be coming to Jerusalem when Christ is there reigning in the kingdom age and will be there worshiping the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. You might want to jot in your notes or in your Bible margin there, Zechariah chapter 8. Uh, we won't touch upon it for sake of time, but there there's a beautiful description of exactly what's being described in verses 12 and 13 in Zechariah 8 pictures that in much greater detail, giving commentary to what's described here. Now, chapter 28, it seems we come back to the present day in the current time as he begins now to pronounce a woe upon the sins of God's people, Israel, both in the north and then we'll see Judah as well in the south. He starts out by saying, verse 1, woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim was the chief city in the north, so oftentimes Ephraim is used to represent the northern kingdom of Israel when we see Ephraim being referred to. So he's referring to the kingdom of the north in the northern kingdom. He refers to them as those wearing a crown of pride. In other words, their minds were so proud that they wore it like a crown. They were, they were being, a crown is, is a picture of rulership. So the picture here is they're being ruled by pride. They're being governed and, and controlled by a spirit of pride and arrogance in their condition, which led to them, interesting, to becoming drunkards there in Ephraim, whose glorious beauty, he says, is a fading flower, which at the head of the verdant, fertile valleys to those who are overcome with wine. Now, the northern kingdom, as being pictured here in verse 1, had experienced a season of tremendous prosperity, and it had flourished and resulted uh, in them experiencing these verdant valleys and the glorious beauty. But God says here, uh, that unfortunately has now contributed to a very proud mindset. And they had become very arrogant and full of pride. And, and we know, boy, pride is it not something that's so insidious. It can be manifested in many different ways. And it's one of the things I think is one of the chief deceptions of pride is oftentimes it can manifest itself in ways whereby we don't even realize that it's our pride <laughs> and that it is pride. I mean, pride, I can think of two very simple ways. Pride oftentimes manifests itself in a person seeing themselves as more important or more special or more superior than what they really are, and more superior or more special or important than others around them. And then that's why they then treat people in a way whereby they see themselves as entitled to certain exceptions that other people aren't entitled to, or certain privileges. And there's this superiority mindset. And so therefore, I have the right to do these things or to abuse my, my power or position, or you know, I'm entitled to certain exceptions that other people, in a sense, are held accountable to. And this is what pride does. It gives us a, a superiority complex that makes us behave wrongly and treat people wrongly. Sometimes pride, in another way, is manifested in just an unwillingness to admit we're struggling. Or, or it's our own stubbornness that causes us not to refuse help or, or not to receive help and to kind of refuse people being able to assist us. And boy, that's a fitting description of how someone ultimately comes into the condition where they go from drinking to becoming a drunkard, right? Because they, they refuse to acknowledge their genuine struggle or to receive the help that they need having now become a drunkard. And it can lead many times, pride can, to a person falling into this condition of the sin of drunkenness. 
Again, the, the Bible seems to speak nothing of you know ideas that people you know uh, have a, have a, a disease that causes them to be uh, in, a, in an addictive behavior. The Bible speaks of the sin of drunkenness. In other words, God says it's your flesh, it's your sin nature. Let's cut out this idea. Oh, I have an addictive this, or, or I have a the disease of alcoholism. No, the Bible says it's called the sin of drunkenness, just like there's a sin of lust or a sin of dishonesty or a sin of unforgiveness and bitterness, or again, pick your poison. And God here just simply lays it out in his word as a sinful tendency that stems from the mother of all sins, which is pride, because pride is often the mother of all sins that feeds and gives birth to many other sins in our lives. And he describes here in our verses, unfortunately, those in Ephraim who would become drunkards. Again, these were supposed to be God's people, but yet they become drunkards. He says the end of verse 1, who had been overcome. They've become overcome with wine. The idea is they started out as drinkers. But because they became overcome by the substance that they felt they had the liberty to indulge and to enjoy, that's how becoming overcome, they started as drinkers and they became drunkards. And that's always what happens is someone starts out with, it's a drink, it's a liberty, it's a freedom. And whether it's just the general person in the population, or let's just be very candid, whether it's the Christian who says, I have a biblical basis to drink alcohol. And being faithful to the integrity of God's word, that is true. I cannot build a biblical case to say that a Christian does not have the liberty to indulge alcohol. They do. There is a freedom there. You, the Bible is very clear about drunkenness. The difficulty is where those lines blur together. <laughs> the difficulty is what's the intention of drinking? What's the purpose of drinking? And, and where does it lead to? And the problem is, is as Paul says, you know, uh, he says, all things are lawful or permissible for me, but he says, not all things are helpful. And all things, he says, are lawful, but I don't want to be brought under the power of of anything. In other words, sometimes our freedoms that we can indulge in, and there are different freedoms in the Christian life under grace, we have to ask ourselves, it's not am I allowed to, we have to ask ourselves, is that helpful for me? Is that helpful for my Christian walk? That's the question we should be asking regarding liberties. And particularly, the second question is, if it's not helpful for my Christian walk, is it possible that in exercising that freedom and liberty, that I could ultimately have that overcome me, and then I lose my liberty. I lose my freedom because what started as a freedom now becomes bondage because now it takes power over my life and I become overcome by it. And these are the honest questions that we need to be asking ourselves to realize the danger of such things. Here he describes, and we're going to see some of the references to how these who were drunkards were behaving, and, and it's it doesn't seem like a real good existence. It led to a lot of problematic things. You know, I just, you know, for sake of curiosity, just even, you know, researched recently, alcohol contributes in the United States of America to 140,000 deaths annually. 140,000 people per year die in our country, in direct relationship to alcohol. Not a natural death. They died because of some negative consequence of alcohol. If that's not enough for you, the economic impact of the misuse of alcohol in the United States of America is estimated economic impact in our country annually, $249 billion dollars. One person added that out. That's almost $1,000 per human being as a taxpayer on the planet. Aren't you glad that your taxes are going to good cause? To help fix people who want to utilize the liberty. And look, I think it's so much of an insidious problem because we're very quick to look negatively upon things like opiates and illegal drugs. The quandary with alcohol is it's so socially acceptable, right? And if we just want to be candid... It's so socially acceptable. There's a legalized aspect of it. And so it's not looked upon in the same way as heroin or crack or cocaine. Or, and the reality is we lose more people nationally in this country per year to alcohol than we do illegal drug use. 
and the economic impact problematically to America is worse from alcohol than it is from illegal drug use. And again, it's just something that, again, we have to be very prudent and wise about in regards to it because it can be something that can be a great, great problem. And again, some perhaps even may hear what I'm saying or will listen to this, and their pride will say, how dare you talk about my glass of wine with dinner? I hate that stupid Bible study, Pastor Tony. Look, I'm not trying to offend your pride. I'm just trying to caution you in love. And the nation was having a great problem. They had become drunkards, he says, who were overcome with wine. Verse 2, he goes on to say, Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Who will bring them down to the earth with his hand? So he's describing God because they'd become so proud, wearing their crown of pride. God opposes the proud, and he says, I'm going to like a strong wind like a storm come flooding through, and I am going to bring them down. God was going to dethrone them in their pride. Verse 3 again, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, there's our phrase again, God says, will be trampled underfoot. Doesn't sound like a good outcome of pride and becoming a drunkard. You end up being trampled, God says, underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is the head of the verdant valley like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it's still in his hand. So he's picturing here how God would severely humble them because of their great pride to wake them up. And he says, for God, he says, it's going to be as easy as somebody just picking a piece of ripe fruit off and just popping it into their mouth. God has, doesn't matter how proud and stubborn and obstinate a human being can be, or a whole nation can be, or a subcategory of people can be, if God needs to humble strongly, God, God says, look, I can just send one windstorm, or I can just go, I can just, I can pluck somebody off of a fig tree as easy as I need to. And so God here, again, is just reminding us how dangerous and foolish it is, because ultimately, again, our pride is something that makes us in wrong relationship with God. And that's the ultimate thing, that we want to stay humble before God in regards to our condition so that we're not resisting His will and His best for our lives, to our own detriment. Verse 5, and in that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people, for a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment, and for strength, the idea is boldness, courage, to those who turn back the battle to those who would be warriors at the city gate. So here he describes in verses 5 and 6 that as the Lord kind of, we might say, cleans house among the rebellious of Ephraim, among the nation of Israel, which were God's people, as the Lord cleans house amongst the rebellious of his people, notice God always preserves a faithful remnant. He says, to the remnant of his people. Again, God always has a faithful remnant, and that faithful remnant, once the house has been cleaned, will really want the Lord to rule over them. Notice now the, the, the crown has changed from a crown of pride, a bunch, a bunch of drunkards indulging and abusing alcohol to a wrong degree. Now it's referring to a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty, and the idea is, is the Lord ruling over them, that they'll want the Lord's governance over their lives. They want the Lord to be who's admired and ruling over their lives. And he apparently, verse 6, will give them a renewed heart for what is good and right, where they long like judges to make justice in their judgments. In other words, they'll have a longing for righteousness in their decisions. And there'll be this uh, boldness, if you would, like a warrior to stand for what's right and what's pleasing to God as God cleans the house and his faithful remnant continue to go forward in a new way, seeking to honor him. Verse 7, but they also, now when he says here, they also, what he's doing now is he's drawing our attention to the kingdom of Judah. And what he's saying is, in the same way Ephraim was doing these things in the north, and one would expect that their brothers in the south and Judah would say, you know what? I don't know if I want to do the same thing that happened to Israel up there in the north. It didn't seem like it worked out well for them that they would learn the lesson and not repeat the same mistakes 
But unfortunately, God says the same problem was happening among the southern kingdom. But they also have erred, God says, through wine. Now, again, just, just follow the language here. They've erred through wine. doesn't say they made good decisions through wine. He says they erred through their wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. Now, he says, bigger problem, the priest and the prophet. These were the spiritual leaders. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink, and they are swallowed up by wine, and they are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision, and they stumble in judgment. Verse 8, God's very picturesque. For all the tables are full of vomit and filth. (laughs) No place is clean. So again, God uses very clear language, and here he's drawing attention to the bigger issue is now even the spiritual leaders are making concessions. He says the priest and the prophet who are supposed to be godly people setting a godly example, they themselves are indulging to excess into an inappropriate way alcohol and are erring through intoxicating drink and now themselves being swallowed up through wine and therefore stumbling in their own judgment. And boy, I read this and I think to myself, boy, sadly, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Look, I think it is a fair assessment and you are free to disagree, but since I have the microphone, I'm going to share it for a moment. One of my great concerns that that I see, and look, I've been a Christian since 1992, so I got a little bit of of history on that. One of my great concerns that I see, I feel like in, in, in recent years among Christianity generally is in the same way that other things just in culture generally are becoming almost like trendy. And it almost seems like, again, and this is my, my conviction, I feel like the whole uh, LGBTQ, transgender, th- I feel like that's almost becoming like a trendy thing. It's almost like the trendy thing. It's, some people, it's not even a moral issue. It's just, it's the trendy thing. It's kind of just like the in thing to do. And my great concern, as here we see what was happening among the people of God, I feel like that drinking is becoming like the trendy thing among Christians these days. It's almost like the cool, slick, and savvy thing. And because of that, it's not just a concern for the body of Christ, but my bigger concern is is ministers and pastors and spiritual leaders are giving themselves freedoms in this area And they are causing tremendous problems, not only in their own lives, but are sending a very horrible example, and in many ways are getting themselves way off course, erring in their drinking and their alcohol use. And to me, it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. And to me, it's just another ploy of the enemy to just cause further problems among the people of God. Again, he describes as people are under intoxicating drink and abusing and utilizing to excess alcohol, people erring in vision. In other words, they can't see clearly. They're, they're, not, they're not making sound judgments. Notice they stumble in judgment. And again, this is just reality. This is what happens under the influence of alcohol. It affects the way that you see things and it makes your, your judgment poor. And if that's not enough, he says, and, and here's what it does. It sets you a table full of vomit and filth. I don't know, I think I'll pass on that one. Vomit and filth. Doesn't sound like something I want to have on my table. Verse 9, whom will he teach knowledge, they say, and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breast. The idea is brand new babies, little children. Is this who Isaiah is trying to speak to? The word of the Lord? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with the stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. That is, God will speak to them differently because they didn't want to hear the clear speech of Isaiah, to whom he said, this is the rest which you may cause the weary to rest. And God says, this is the refreshing Yet, notice, the people did not want to hear, but, verse 13, does God change his methods because people don't like his methods? 
he's pretty secure. God doesn't have an insecurity complex. God doesn't say, okay, if, you're, if, if you've got a progressive idea, I guess I'll adjust to you. God doesn't do that. But, verse 13, the word of the Lord was to them, here it is again, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken, that is by the word of the Lord, and snared and caught in their error as they hear God's truth as he was communicating to them. Now, our verses here, verse 9 down through verse 13, notice what they are doing is they're describing for us, unfortunately, how the people were mocking Isaiah the prophet. That, that's the language here. They're mocking Isaiah, again, and this all makes sense, right? What's he doing? I mean, he's, he's addressing their pride. He's calling them out on their drunkenness. I mean, I mean he's, he's speaking the truth to them, and, and it stings, and, and it's like a sword going into their... So they're, they're frustrated, and they're resistant, and, and they don't like the light being shined. So they're angry with Isaiah, so they're mocking his message, and they're mocking, notice, the style, and the method by which he was communicating to them. So they're mocking his message, and they're mocking his style and method of communication, saying, verse 9, who's this? Who's he going to teach some knowledge to? Is he really going to impart knowledge to us? Whom is he going to make understand? Is he trying to talk to babies? Is he trying to talk to children in the Sabbath school class? I mean, what they're conveying about Isaiah that irritated them basically was his message and his method. The style in which he communicated, their problem was he's too simplistic. I mean, it's not slick enough. It's just, he just uses plain, simple language, and the way that he speaks is just simple, methodical explanations, and they felt offended that he wasn't impressive enough. I mean, come on, don't you have some heavy, revy, mystical, esoteric, unique insight that no prophet's ever seen before? And on top of that, I mean, the way that you speak, it's like you communicate on a level like, like you're talking to children. It's almost like you're trying to talk to, and look, when somebody's effectively communicating to children, what do they do? They put the cookies on the shelf where the kids can reach them, right? They don't try and impress children with all their knowledge and their unique insights, they speak and they impart knowledge and truth in a way that can be easily understood and digested and that it can be benefited from and that they can be nourished and helped. And this is what they were frustrated with Isaiah about. They mock him and say, I mean, this guy, the way he's, it's just precept upon precept. It's just one truth after another truth. He, I mean, there's not, there's not even a nice outline to his message. He just goes precept well that, well, that precept doesn't go with that precept. You don't have a rhyming outline there, Isaiah. It's just, it's one truth. And then he just, just turns around and gives us another truth. And he just methodically, in this simplistic way, just gives one truth after another. They say, line upon line, line upon line. It was just, he reads one line, and then he just goes and reads the next line. And then he talks about the next line, and here a little, he gives a little information, and he describes that line, and he reads it and expounds it and applies it, and then he just reads the next line again. I mean, this is like too simplistic. It wasn't savvy enough for them, and they actually were bothered by this, and they were mocking Isaiah and criticizing him. Think about it. They were criticizing Isaiah for the exact way that God really wanted his word to be communicated. <laughs> And they're actually mocking him for it. What Isaiah is doing, he's not taking the word of God and trying to create unique outlines and therefore, in, in a sense, for the sake of creating his unique, cool outline, you know, the power of God and the problems of man and the peril of not listening to the power of God and, and then forcing the text and changing what it says because I need another P in my outline. Instead, he was just exegeting the word of the Lord and giving it to them line upon line, precept upon precept. And again, how does God want to speak to humanity? Clearly. Clearly. That's the heart of God. 
God wants to teach and to explain and have the knowledge of him be simple and clear and understandable. And, and they're mad at Isaiah because he's just making it clear and simple to them. I, I tell you something, I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of a you know, movement of churches who, you know, has a, a, a founding pastor, if we could call him that, who one of the biggest things I often would hear him say at, at our pastor's conference is, fellas, simply teach the word simply. Simply teach the word simply. And I, I, I can say this, I am so thankful that in the earliest days of my Christian walk that I fell in love with just even the style, the way that Pastor Chuck exposited the word. <laughs> because if you listen to Pastor Chuck, and I love and admire Pastor Chuck, I mean, I just have so much respect for him. He wasn't a super savvy, golden-tongued word. I mean, he knew the word of God incredibly well, but his style of communication he was not shouting at people. He didn't get revved up. He, he, I mean, he, there weren't these slick outlines. He spoke very slow with long pauses and very efficient use of words, and I admire that because in 30 years of teaching the Bible, I'm still trying to figure some of that out. But here's the thing I can tell you about Pastor Chuck is though he spoke very descriptive of what's described here, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, the anointing of God's spirit was upon Chuck, and that's why people got ministered to. And that's why people grew and were fed and they were nourished because they got well-balanced diets and knowledge from the word of God, and it ministered to people tremendously. And I'm so grateful for that because I look at some people who are, again, even good communicators of the word of God, and I think to myself, if that would have been the first thing I would have saw, I would have went, no way. I will never teach the Bible because I can't do that. I just, I can't do that. I can't pace around and remember everything in my head. I can't do that, but I'm so thankful to realize that God's into simplicity and that people need clarity and they, they want understanding. And here Isaiah beautifully is upheld in this way and God says, but this is how the word of the Lord is going to come to them. And again, I, I find that so wonderful that Isaiah gives to us this because it shows that this is the heart of the Lord of how he was going to give the word forth, whether they liked the way Isaiah was doing it or not. And Isaiah here references in verse 11 how with stammering lips and another tongue, if need be, God would speak to the people if they would not listen to his clear speaking. And what he's describing there in verse 11 is this reality that God would bring in the Assyrians, God would bring in the Babylonians, and as they came in, the Assyrians, and they came in the Babylonians, and they were speaking in foreign languages, it sounded like a bunch of gibberish to the people and it made no sense to them. It did not help them. It imparted no knowledge to them. But what it was clearly doing was God was saying, listen, if you don't want to listen to my clear, simple message, then what I will do is I'll send a foreign invader and you'll hear an enemy inside your own walls speaking in foreign languages, which will benefit you nothing. And the only thing you'll be hearing is, oh my goodness, we're in big trouble now. And so again, it wasn't God's preference to communicate in that way. God's saying, I had to do that because you wouldn't listen, because you weren't willing to hear clear, simple communication. Well, look at me, verse 14. We'll finish up a few more verses. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we've made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement, and with the overflowing scourge that passes through. In other words, the people had become really so rebellious in their deception, they thought that they had made some bizarre contract here, some agreement, it says, a covenant with death and with Sheol, the place of the dead, that somehow the overflowing scourge that would pass through, that it wouldn't affect them. So, so blinded and so deceived were the people that they thought they had made some agreement that they could elude the consequences of the death process, 
of going to Sheol, the place of the dead, and they were living with a false sense of spiritual security. That's what he's describing. That's why at the end of verse 15 he says, and it will not come to us. In other words, death won't, we'll, we'll, we're not worried about death. We're not worried about the afterlife. They had become so deceived, they had a false sense of security. For we have made lies our refuge. And under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. Now, of course, Isaiah now, he's, he's, he's almost like returning some sarcasm back on him. He's kind of returning back the sarcasm saying, this is what it sounds like you're saying to me in your false security. Hey, our refuge is in lies, and we are going to be hidden and protected and saved in our own falsehood. And Isaiah is saying, boy, that is a really dangerous place to be, to be taking refuge and security in lies and in falsehood. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line. God says, I don't care about your standards. I use my standards, justice and righteousness for measuring what's right and wrong, and righteousness, the plummet, and the hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. Again, God uses the picture here like a storm sweeping away their lies, and the waters overflowing the hiding place. And then God says in rebuke, verse 18, your covenant with death, it's annulled, God says. I'm annulling your covenant. <laughs> God says, you think you've made an agreement that goes against my way? I'm annulling your agreement with death. I'm annulling your agreement with Sheol that will not stand for the overflowing scourge that passes through, and you will be trampled down. As often as it goes, it will take you, for morning by morning it will pass over, night by night, and it will be a terror just to understand the report. So God's reproving them of their false sense of security and saying, listen, you think you've made an agreement that can override my standards, override my ways? God says, I'm telling you right now, I'm annulling your agreement. God says, I'm the judge. I'm the lawgiver. So at the end of the day, I'm both lawgiver and judge. And so therefore, he says, I don't care what humans create as their own standard of salvation or security. God says, annulled. It's not going to measure at the end of the day. He says, my measuring standards are what's going to be used. And again, what is God's measuring standard? Verse 16, this beautiful prophecy we know ultimately of a reference to Christ. I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. In other words, God's only assurance, he says, is not your agreements and the standards of how you want to measure what's right and moral and spiritual, because that's what people always want to do. They want to create their own ideas of religion. They want to create their own ideas of standards, and they want to be the authority. And God says, listen, the only assurance is trusting and building your life and your hope upon me, upon the foundation of the rock of ages, because I am both lawgiver and judge. And of course, we know this foundation of building our life and our eternity upon God for the only security, spiritually and eternally, is ultimately Jesus himself, who the Bible says is the chief cornerstone of both the church and of the Christian life. And notice Jesus is, as First Peter describes him, that cornerstone in the New Testament. Jesus himself makes reference to this in the Gospels. So we know this is a reference to Christ as the chief cornerstone of the house of God, of the ways of God, of the Christian life. And Jesus is, as verse 16 describes, a tried stone. Jesus has been tried in every way. He's been tempted in all ways by sin and overcame and never sinned and lived sinlessly. Jesus was tried and tested to see whether he was indeed the Son of God, and he passed every single test. He fulfilled every single prophecy. They tried him, they examined him like the sacrificial Passover lamb, and he was the perfect spotless lamb of God, the perfect Passover lamb. He was tried, and he passed all the tests, and he's the only sure foundation. There is no assurance apart from Jesus Christ, for eternity. He is the only hope. He is the sure foundation, 
and the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the primary foundational stone that everything else was built upon and everything else was measured off of. So if you've got the wrong cornerstone, everything else you try and build upon will ultimately fall apart. But if you've got the right cornerstone and you build everything on the cornerstone and you measure everything off of the cornerstone, then everything else will be accurate and correct. And in that way, Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church, and he's the chief cornerstone of our Christian lives, that we need to build upon Jesus, have our full trust in Jesus as the foundation of our faith and our eternity for our soul and the forgiveness of sins, and we need to measure everything, not according to the standards of the world or the standards we come up, we need to measure everything according to the standard of Jesus. That's the measuring standard. Don't measure yourself off of other Christians. Oh, well, comparison to that Christian, comparison to this Christian, I'm a pretty good Christian. Wrong measurement. We measure off of Christ. And when I measure off of Christ, here's what I know. I got a lot of growing to do still. I got a lot more Christ-like development that still needs to happen in my life. And that will keep us progressing in fruitful Christianity rather than digressing because we measure ourselves off of other Christians and make ourselves feel better. And then what I can tend to do in that situation is I make exceptions for myself for areas of my flesh. And we don't want to do that. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We want to believe upon and rest upon him. And he says, whoever believes on him won't act, notice, hastily. In other words, we won't make hasty, impulsive decisions. We'll slow down. We'll look to Jesus and we'll say, Lord, you tell me what's your measurement off of this. What, what do you think about this? Rather than making hasty decisions that end up being not good for our lives.